Hello, welcome to the Dot Metaverse podcast. I'm Ido Siegel, CEO of Touchcast. We're leading the metaverse into the enterprise realm. Join us every week as we explore key themes and ideas surrounding the metaverse. What an amazing treat we have today. We have Rob Tersek with us. Uh, I've known Rob for many years. Well, what I'm hopeful for is that you'll see instead of a single metaverse or a handful of dominated metaverses, I'd love to see a flowering of thousands or maybe millions of metaverses where people can find different ways to interact, different ways to be communal, different ways to participate with each other. The listeners probably don't uh, know of your illustrious path. Uh, maybe if you can share a bit uh, of, uh, of your journey so far and this, I'm so looking forward to, to a very interesting conversation about where we're all headed. Oh, sure. Well, I'd be happy to share that. Uh, so I'm Rob Tersik, and um, for 30 years I've been working at the forefront of digital media, digital transformation, and, and principally focused on media, uh, the media industry. But, but that's everything now, because literally everything from banking and insurance to real estate is becoming digitized. And so along the way, I've done a bunch of things. I've written a book. I'm an award-winning author. I run a podcast called The Futurists, uh, where we interview people who are thinking about the future. I think it's an important skill because the world's changing. So I like to get that information out there to people. They can practice thinking about the future themselves. And I think that visualization is super important when it comes to thinking about the future. The ability to turn ideas into visual images is very important. Uh, and so for myself, uh, the visual arts are important. They're an important part of what I do, a big part of my process. Well, I can't help but bite on that, Rob, uh, because I know my mind has literally been blown by DALI 2. Uh, and uh, it's just, I, I, I keep trying to explain to people how profound this is. And I can't explain it because uh, like yourself, like we both have artwork behind us uh, as artists, uh, it's, uh, it's not something that I was expecting. And as, a, as an engineer and someone that's been in uh, creating very robust AI systems for 30 years. Uh, it, it's not like I can explain it. Uh, so how do you interpret this moment? Well, and creative people have been conditioned for years to believe that what they do is somehow special and unique. I mean, I, I have this, I've internalized this belief myself, right? So uh, I remember getting in debates just 10 years ago with AI researchers who said that literally everything you do could be done by a computer at some point. And I was like, yeah, but the creative process, that's special, that's unique. And, and so I feel sorry for people in my town. I live in Hollywood. I live in Los Angeles. I deal with a lot of people in the motion picture and entertainment industry. And they're operating under an assumption that what they do is somehow uh, exempt from digital transformation. And I have bad news for all of them, which is it's no longer exempt. And this change came so quickly, right? Because look, I mean, GPT-3 is a big step. It's not fully going to automate the creation of content, right? But it's a step in that direction. It's the first signal we're starting to see that this stuff could actually be good. Uh, and you're seeing that with you know, algorithms that can generate music. Uh, we're now, of course, generating images with Dolly, and I think that's a really significant step. It's not perfect, right? So, so skeptics can look and say, they can find a reason to, to stay skeptical. They can find a reason to cling to the status quo because these systems aren't perfect yet, but what they're missing is the, the pace of improvement is so blisteringly fast. And now we can plot out the timeline in months instead of years. So yeah, we're on the brink of a very big change, I think. The way I try to process this is, uh, and, and I think it's also a function of age, like when you get a bit older and you have a certain level of life experience, you kind of start feeling like you understand the world maybe a bit better. Not that you stop thinking how insane it is, but, and, and like your relationship with your children, it's like you want to be able to transfer that to them, this thing that you feel. And, and you can't, you can't really articulate it in words, just sit them down. This is how it works. Like, and, and it's, it, we're all living in this fishbowl, which is kind of like a fish that can't imagine what being on land is. And in many ways, I think humanity has tried to translate that sense into alchemy, which is the source of most, I think, religions. Like, how do you explain these things that you, you feel, but you can't really articulate? And in some ways, the, this new generation of emergent AI is the priesthood of that is these these people very smart people working at these uh top institutions building it but the outcome is this uh, a way to see this kind of collective consciousness that when dali 2 creates a, an amazing image that i would hang on my wall it's not like the, the ai didn't do anything it's just compounding human input right human creativity 
into something that could that can output it and in that way it's kind of spiritual so i'm personally looking forward to just collaborating with it right you have this you can i can collaborate with heronius bosch right now right i can literally collaborate with him even though he's been dead for hundreds of years I think that's a really constructive way to look at it, right? Some people defend and some people deny and some people resist. Um, but I think you and I are more inclined to embrace it and say, okay, what can I do with this new tool? And, and if you look at these new tools and say, okay, they, they give us superpowers, they confer a superpower on us. What is the superpower? How might I use that? How might I use that to be even better at what I do? This is a constructive approach, right? Otherwise you feel powerless. You feel like you're, you're, um, you're being acted upon by technology. Nobody likes that experience. But if you feel like you can actually master this and collaborate with it, I think that's a healthy approach. You touched on something else, though, that I want to I make sure we don't skip over because it's a good topic. You talked about this religious impulse, right? And, and, you know, for centuries, we've been aware that humanity, yes, is rational in some circumstances, but highly irrational in other circumstances. And one of the things that's so puzzling about the time that we're in right now, you know, that we, we think we're in an information age, we think we have information at our fingertips, we have answers for everything, it seems, right, and scientific explanations for almost everything. And yet, we're behaving in so many very obviously irrational ways. And one, you know, we're destroying the planet. I'm talking to you at a time when there's massive heat waves striking Europe and other parts of the world, the United States as well. There's droughts all over the world. Uh, and other places are getting inundated by, by floods. Uh, so we're starting to see that, you know, humanity has had this impact, we've, which we've predicted since the 1970s. You know, it's, we've seen it coming. Uh, we, we've had every rational reason to do something to take a precaution, but we can't seem to stop our behavior, can't change our behavior. We're seeing that, that, that sort of um, fatalistic uh, inability to anticipate or, or respond rationally uh, to the world. We're seeing that play out all over the place now, and, and it's a very odd time. Uh, and, and there is a religious impulse at work. I mean, re recently, look, you saw this researcher, uh, ethics, AI ethics researcher at Google, who fell under the spell of, you know, of Google's algorithms, uh, thinking that he, he had a conversational bot, basically, and he was talking to it and, and started to think that the thing was sentient and made a very compelling case, right? So if you, if you didn't know that he was completely incorrect, you could be persuaded uh, by, by the arguments that he made that he was actually talking to a sentient computer. He wasn't. It's not true. It was easily and swiftly debunked. But here you have a person who is at the very for forefront of this. You know, a person who's working deep inside the machine who falls under the spell or the enchantment of these new technologies. And I felt some sympathy for that person because I think quite a few people feel that way. You know, uh, it's, it's that old Arthur C. Clarke uh, statement where, you know, technology, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. We're under the spell I, of these I actually, you know, have a theory on some of this when we talk about climate, and that is that we have this fundamental mechanism in our brain that is there to allow us to live in the shadow of our mortality. Because if you think about the fact that we all feel every day that we were going to die, we probably have a hard time functioning, right? And we, 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 our parents leave us and people that we love leave us. Uh, so there's a very strong biological thing that prevents uh, people from being able to process uh, impending doom. Uh, and it has to be there. And I recently had a very unfortunate experience. We have an incredible team in Ukraine, uh, which, I, which are like my TouchCast. We're one big family, over 200 people in 18 countries. And the, the team in Ukraine has been there from before the start. Um, and we all work together every day. And I had access to a lot of information because I have you know, people in the State Department. And it was obvious to me, as someone that lives in the future, what's going to happen. But there was no way that I can convince my team to be proactive and potentially move away from where they were. And I think there's many reasons for this, but having had many conversations, like nobody could imagine that it's hard to wrap your mind around something like that. And it's, there's a biological reason. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. And, that's, and that's, a, that's a blind spot, right? Which is, if you accept that rationale, then it's... it's you don't know if the species is going to survive, right? Because it's incapable of processing the information because it's, it's, it's not, it can't, can't buy into it, right? Nobody wants to contemplate impending doom. That's certainly, that's certainly true. Uh, the other thing is we, we can't seem to uh, imagine alternatives. You know, I mean, you know me back in the day when we first met, I was at a movie studio 
and a big part of my job in the movie studio was dealing with TV and film executives who, who couldn't get their heads wrapped around the internet. This is back in the 90s when the internet was still very much in its infant stage in terms of its ability to disrupt, but it was already seen as a threat by the media industry as a, as a potentially disruptive threat. And they had a very hard time understanding that. Uh, you know, there was a lot of resistance to it. And so, you know, I kept trying to say, look, we should understand this technology. We should see how we can embrace it and use it and so on. Media people don't tend to care that much about technology. And that's a blind spot that they've got. But the bigger blind spot was the thought that they could somehow stop it, uh, that they could somehow, you know, take some action, legal action or something where they could stop the internet. And I kept trying to say, it's like trying to say you're going to stop um, the tide. <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to build a wall to hold this tide out? Uh, you know, and, and even today we see we see governments trying to do this and they're trying to control this. But I think what we've created collectively is un, an unstoppable trend, um, and 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 the technology is a part of that. Maybe it fuels it. Maybe um, and maybe it, maybe it is on the brink of going out of control. I mean, for instance, things you can't seem to stop. Uh, governments can't seem to stop, or no other force can stop. Blockchain, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence. Uh, the ability to broadcast ideas. I mean, governments are trying very hard to control these things in one way or another, but they can't seem to. And so this idea of like what's unstoppable, it's another scary thought, right? Because it, it makes you feel powerless. Uh, wow, this is a really interesting conversation, Ido. I didn't think we were going to be talking about these philosophical concepts so early in the morning for me here in California. <laughs> what, what else should we talk about? So interestingly, blockchain and cryptocurrencies in view of the the current winter in that environment, which is making it very vulnerable to regulation and feels a bit like a big celebration of institutions uh, fighting back the change because there is a lack of regulation. Yeah. What do you think about that? What's going on now there? I'm frustrating to a lot of folks because I'm both, I'm an investor, I'm, I'm in the space, I'm active in cryptocurrency and I've been involved in it since 2012. So I've been involved for about a decade. And yet I'm also really skeptical about a lot of the claims. So for instance, when NFTs became popular a few years ago, a bunch of media companies asked me to investigate them on their behalf uh, to find out if there was a path forward for them. And I think there are, I think there are good cases for some media companies, but not all. Uh, it doesn't solve all problems. But at the same time, I was like, wait a minute, there's something else going on here with NFTs. Uh, they're getting hyped to a level where th that doesn't make any sense. Like a JPEG of a, of a, or a GIF of a, of a cat isn't worth $20 million. Like that's, that's not a logical thing. There's no rational explanation for that. And so there's a sort of like realm of, of um, irrational speculative frenzy that wraps around these things. And that creates, that makes it very difficult to evaluate the potentially positive uses of these technologies. First of all, I'm no fan of speculative frenzy, right? I'm not a fan of, of irrational behavior. So that, that causes me to be skeptical to begin with and negative about it to begin with. But I want to understand decentralization and the potential for it. And I also want to understand if Web3 is just a marketing slogan or if it's a real thing, if there's real potential in a fully decentralized infrastructure for the web. I like the brochure. I like the marketing of it, right? I'm, I want to believe this stuff. And yet every implementation is so riddled with flaws and frankly, so security flaws uh, and so hacked. And so many of them seem to be a scam or a ripoff that you have to proceed with a great deal of caution. This is a very weird space to be in. I want to be optimistic. And yet all the signals I'm getting cause me to be very, very skeptical about it. Yeah, how do, you, how do you think it's different from, you talked about the 90s and, you know, Web Web 1. It was kind of crazy back then, too, right? There were all these things. But somehow it feels intuitively the level of scamming that goes on in the, in the world of Web 3 is much, much higher. Do you think that's a fair... Uh, well, sure. Yeah, sure. In the 90s, you had companies going public for $100 million that had no visible means of support, like Globe.com, right? Famously, they exploded in the late 90s. In the crypto world, you have someone getting ripped off for $100 million every couple of days. Like every week, there's a ripoff that's happening at that level. First off, you know, this is not like a couple bad companies going public or even like, you know, um, thinking infrastructure, companies like WorldCom that were flogging in, uh, impossible schemes and so forth. And eventually that got, those companies got blown up as well. This, is be, this goes way beyond that. First, the scale is much bigger and they move much faster and there's a lot more of them. So that, that's like a lot of noise. What I'm trying to tease out is what's the signal? And you know, the signal for Web3, the vision is a fully decentralized web or even a partially decentralized web. What it really means is the absence of large platforms, the absence of these five or 10 dominant companies 
that control so many aspects of what we do on the web. It's almost impossible to use the internet, the commercial internet, the, you know, the, the mass market internet, without touching Google and without being touched by Facebook in some way. But I would argue, you know, arguably, you're going to end up crossing paths with Amazon and Microsoft at some point as well, because so much stuff is served on the cloud and you're going to touch their infrastructure if you're doing games or anything else. So, you know, frankly, these companies are unavoidable. Um, and the vision of Web3 is, is can we posit a world that goes back to kind of Web1, uh, the early days of the web, where anyone can control infrastructure and anyone can participate, anyone can publish. It's a really interesting promise. And by the way, I'm not seeing as much evidence of it considering the amount of money that's been poured into this space in the last two years. But I, again, I want to believe it. I want to remain open to it. Um, I guess I'm really cautious about getting skinned as well because like everybody, I've gotten burned on a couple of coin offerings and a couple of other things that were fraud fraudulent. If you play in this space, it kind of comes with the territory. Um, but you know, because it's unregulated and because it's about crypto, um, it's a, crypto is about money ultimately. It also has this other aspect where it attracts the worst people on the planet. And I'm talking about you know people who are doing money laundering, people who are doing weapons dealing and drug dealing. And so it's like unfortunately you've got that element. Um, what someone said to me is any anytime you do a coin offering or an NFT offering, you have to understand that some percentage of your customers are criminals. It's like, wow, what a way to do business. Like, what a way to go out in the world. And there's no police. Right? You can't call in the cops if you get ripped off or if you get hacked. There's no, there's no body that's going to arbitrate this because it's unregulated. So that makes it a perilous space. It's a very creative space. On a positive note, the thing about Web3 I think that's worth considering carefully is how much developer activity is happening. Tons. Where, you know, the last time I saw this level of intensity of developer activity and innovation was in the mid 2000s with mobile where pretty much everybody was trying to figure out what were they going to do with mobile and how would it play out and it evolved differently in different phases from 2004 to 2014 huge companies were created huge fortunes were made other companies were destroyed you know um, among them nokia motorola rim you know like really pretty successful companies in the 2000s got washed away by the 2010s. It's very possible something similar can happen with Web3, but I, I suspect the timeline is not next year or the year after. I think it's gonna take a bit longer than people expect. And what I'm really curious about is can a decentralized web, Web3 exist or coexist with these giant Web2 platforms? And how long can that happen? How long can that go on? You know, the technology is always something that could be used for you know, very good purposes and very bad purposes. Like think of nuclear plants versus nuclear bombs and the internet. As a builder, as someone that is, feels a sense of responsibility to, you know, to apply creative energy and our leadership and our willingness to take risks towards building things. You know, I have two really best friends from childhood and, and one of them is one of those folks that always wanted to, to didn't appreciate the progress, right? Wanted to listen to vinyl and didn't see why uh, and it was always this ongoing argument. Uh, so, and I recall my kind of starry-eyed explanation to them of Web two, like about democratization and about the fact that kind of like the way you just articulated the big tech, and it was big media at the time, right? Like we're going to move power back to the people, right? And they're going to. So it seemed like such a positive technology for good, right? And and we, we kind of. <laughs> We know how that played out, you know. So, it's, so you you kind of come to the conclusion the problem is humanity, not the technology, right? And then the question is how susceptible is the technology to being abused by bad actors? And when you think about Web three, to the point you just made earlier, it, I have to say that even though I'm very excited about it as a as a builder and as a technologist as a practitioner, the humanistic part of me, the part that cares about the the future I leave for my children, is is really concerned and, and confused. This question of just the fact that we can do something doesn't mean we should. That's such a thin line for technologists, right? Because it applies to so many things, like eliminating jobs. Do you have a similar sense of, of this progression? Uh, and I very much do. I see it, and I agree with your your perspective on it entirely. It's uh, you know because it's also competitive. We have to bear in mind how intensely competitive the space this is. If one actor says, okay, we're going to be ethical about the use of technology, that just creates a space for someone else to come in and say, great, we're going to exploit that technology for unethical purposes. And it might be a company you're not even aware of in a different geography, in a different part of the world, working for completely different motivations. Uh, so unfortunately, yeah, it's a complex space. Uh, and, and there's a, you know, because technology has been democratized, you know, innovation doesn't just occur in California and Beijing anymore. It happens all over the world simultaneously. 
you can't possibly be aware of all the actors in the space. There are going to be some unscrupulous uses and some surprising edge cases that come into the in, into play. Legitimate companies, this is probably the most perilous thing for them, right? Uh, most of the clients that hire me to help them with strategic thinking and strategic planning, they'll say, look, I know who my competitors are, and they're five companies. We know their products. We understand them. We think we can compete. What I need you to help me with is the companies I don't even know about, the, the, thing, the trends that are outside of our purview, the stuff that's happening in the periphery that we're not watching that's going to blindside us. I do a lot of blind spot coaching with companies, and I think it's an important thing for companies to consider. You know, we know that people have blind spots. We all have them, and, you know, when we drive, there's a blind spot in your mirror, but also in a relationship with anyone, you know, in a, in a personal relationship or business relationship. You can have blind spots there that can lead to conflict and confusion. What we don't often think about is companies have blind spots, and companies also have taboos, topics that you're not allowed to talk about. So when I work with companies, this is actually a big area of focus for me because I think that it's important for companies to surface these things and understand why don't we focus on that? Why don't we talk about it? But you know, Ido, this conversation we're having right now, it goes right back to the beginning. There's a lot of topics that make people uncomfortable. And so just like people don't want to contemplate doom or don't want to contemplate the consequences of their actions, people also don't want to contemplate their weak spots and their blind spots, right? This, is not, this doesn't make us feel good. It makes us feel uncomfortable. So it's hard for us to, uh, to spend a great deal of time focused on that. Speaking of blind spots, there is one topic I want to bring up, which is the metaverse, uh, my perspectives on the metaverse and uh, decolonizing the metaverse, because this topic, which you and I talked about, you know, six or eight months ago, well, it's really gained a lot of momentum in the meantime. And some people are puzzled why I'm so focused on this. But, you know, if you talk about building a, a for-profit private world that people are going to inhabit, where their labor is going to be used to construct the thing, but they're not going to get paid for that labor. That's by definition a colonial project. And I don't think technology companies consider themselves the new British East India Company or the new Dutch East India Company, but indeed that's what they are, what they're becoming. It's not just Facebook. There's more than a thousand companies we're tracking right now that are seeking to build some form of metaverse. And these are privately controlled worlds, societies, that are built for profit, where there will be assets generated, probably data assets, digital assets of various sorts, and those will be extracted and controlled and monetized by the companies that build those worlds. That's a colonial project. And so it's important to understand the legacy of colonialism in the world that we're in. And my big concern is that the race, this kind of pell-mell race that uh, companies have embarked upon, where their engineers are being driven to launch first so that they can enjoy the first mover advantage, those companies are not going to be very scrupulous about where they derive their model for the metaverse from. Uh, they're most likely to try to just replicate the way things are in the world. And that means we might unconsciously replicate the inequality that persists in the world today. There's a lot of colonial artifacts in the world that we live in today. They're embedded in our education system. They're embedded in our legal system, concepts of ownership, the way banking and lending works. Um, many other aspects of society are inflected by the legacy of colonialism. And because we can't really have a conversation about that, uh, it's a very difficult topic to bring up. It's a very controversial topic to bring up. We haven't resolved those things in the world that we live in. My concern is that an engineer at a technology company that is rushing to build a metaverse quickly is simply gonna model that new world, that digital world on the existing world, and thereby they're gonna mindlessly replicate the inequality that's already baked into the world that we live in. I think this is avoidable. I think there's a way to approach the metaverse where we focus on equality of outcomes as a starting point. And therefore, we can avoid some, the, that mindless replication of the inequalities in the world around us. Uh, I understand the use of the metaphor, but I guess the word this, this, this doesn't connect for me is that I, I view colonialism as uh, one people uh, colonizing another, taking over their land, taking over their resources, subjugating them. In the case of these metaverses that are popping up, it's not the case that they're taking over um, someone else's uh, culture and environment and erasing it and, and subjugating them. It's, it's effectively creating new environments and cultures or trying to and inviting people to into that. And then the analogy for me is more of you know government where you pay taxes and you something has to in a world where it's not really decentralized. So I wonder, can you help me tease that out a bit? Sure. So look, your summary of uh, colonialism is by and large accurate, right? So it's the idea of territorial conquest uh, and, and subjugation of people who live there. 
uh, domination by a foreign power, the extraction of resources, the degradation of the environment, the control of that population, sometimes brutally, you know, with, enforced by violence, I guess. And all of this done by private corporations. That's a key point, right? Eventually, the colonies turned into empires, but that, happened, that occurred much later. Uh, companies like the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company operated for 200 years. And bear in mind, they were the largest and most successful private companies in history. We always think that like Apple today or M Microsoft or maybe Facebook or Google, that these are among the largest and most valuable companies in, in history. They're the most valuable companies today, but they are not the largest in history. The Dutch East India Company at its peak in, 18, in, in 1637 was more valuable than all the tech companies today. Uh, and so these companies exerted tremendous amounts of power. Uh, they, they literally control huge swaths of the earth and of the populations of the planet, and they did it for a long time. When we talk about the digital metaverse, what we're really talking about is a land grab. It's a virtual land grab. So we're not talking about physical territory. We're talking about virtual territory. And to the extent that those companies are building it on their own equipment, their own infrastructure, you're right. In a sense, it's like, well, aren't they just extending this to people? Isn't that a service that they're offering? So where is the locus of colonization? It's not the territory. It's not the physical territory. You know, the locus of colonization is in your mind. What's being colonized is your mind. When you spend time in these digital environments, what's happening is they're strip mining you, your personality, your, uh, your understanding, your knowledge, your relationships, your friendships, your preferences, your interests, your habits. All of that is being collected, captured, recorded, and used, and often used against you or used to control you. So that is a form of enslavement. It's not the same thing as this enslavement of people in, in, you know, in Haiti or in, in the Americas. Uh, I understand that difference and I don't wanna minimize it. That would be a tragic mistake if I were to do that. But this is a form of digital, uh, digital control. In 1943, Winston Churchill visited the United States in the middle of World War II. He visited the US and he gave a talk at Harvard and he spoke about colonies of the mind. And he said the future colonies won't be colonies of territory where we try to control and by conquest. This is an extraordinarily interesting insight from someone who fought his entire career to preserve the British Empire, right? That's an extraordinary statement. We don't often think about that. And he was right. And of course, that's what's happening today. And you could argue, I would argue, that much of what occurs in digital media, when we talk about collecting users, gaining users, daily visitors, daily users, how much time people spend on site, how do we control and maintain attention? Everything we have to do in the attention economy is a form of colonization of the mind. And the metaverse just makes it more literal. Now we're actually talking about a virtual space, a place where people are gonna be invited to contribute, they're gonna be invited to participate, and through their actions, they're gonna co-create. But they're not gonna necessarily own these digital worlds, those worlds will be owned and the valuable assets, the data assets that are generated, those will be owned and extracted by the companies that are investing in the metaverse. So to my mind, it's a colonial project. So let, let me bring it back to, uh, just to stay on the metaverse because it's very tempting to spread into other domains, uh, like the role of religion in colonizing the mind. When, when you talk about the bias of those developers, I, of course, res resonates as an AI practitioner with AI bias, which is a big topic as well. But when you say quality of outcome, paint a picture of what that might look like. What, what does success look like? We, let's assume that our listeners understand the challenge and the problem, and we're optimists, so, and we still got out of bed and still keep pushing this rock up the hill because we're optimists. We don't think we're destroying the world. We think we're actually improving it. So what, what, is, what does a path to success look like potentially? Just one scenario. Sure thing. So focusing on outcomes instead of process is a good thing to do. And out, one outcome would be making equality the top priority, as opposed to say, you know, profitability or user statistics, you know, the, the number of visitors or the number of users and so forth. How you define equality and how we recognize that, that remains to be seen. But one thing that I think we, we could agree on would be that different voices have equal representation, that, that these are not worlds that are standardized around a certain set of tools that allow you to express yourself in only one way. There has to be room and scope for a multiplicity of perspectives. And actually the terminology here is important and I think it's confusing sometimes. We talk about the metaverse, but as you, I think you would probably agree with me, there isn't going to be one metaverse. Just by virtue of the fact that there's a thousand companies competing in the space, there's going to be many. You could argue that games like Fortnite uh, are already a kind of metaverse, a proto-metaverse, right? Or Roblox or Minecraft. 
uh, because these are worlds where things happen inside them. Uh, we can have entertainment, we can, have, we can exchange ideas, we can learn inside them and so forth. So already you're starting to see some prototypical behavior happening and there's multiple metaverses. So then we're really not talking about one metaverse, we're talking about multiverses. Now there, there's a downside and an upside there. The downside scenario of the multiverse is that all we have is a, a battle, a grueling battle between competing empires um, to control people. The upside potential is the way to look at it is that this is an opportunity to experiment with human community and digital, and digital environments. I'm excited about the multiverse concept because I see the possibility that different companies and different organizations, maybe they're not companies, can create metaverses that are organized around different principles. Because I think what I'm trying to describe here is an emergent phenomenon. It's not going to be like, it, there's not an example to point to. We have to build the example. It doesn't exist yet. Uh, speaking from a decoloniality perspective, the term they would use is not metaverse or multiverse. They would use the term pluriverse. Because what they're really focused on is that there are many different conditions of being, many different ways to exist. But the Western world, the colonizer, has one idea about how people should exist, and they want to impose that on everyone else. And you have to kind of conform to that to survive and thrive inside of those colonized societies. And that's very much the template for the metaverse, where it's sort of like one way to be in, in Facebook's version of the metaverse in Horizon. There's one way to represent yourself. There's one way to participate. A pluriversal perspective would enable lots of micro communities to emerge and find different ways to collaborate, different ways to participate. It's very possible that decentralized tech and Web3 might actually fuel this. Um, so that's where I'm, I'm optimistic about Web3 and decentralization. Because the whole problem with the centralized platforms is they in, inevitably, in order to consolidate control, they have to start to become dictators. I mean, I think you've seen this. This happens with Apple and their App Store. This has happened with, uh, with Facebook and developers on their platform. Uh, and now increasing with their users. When a company gets to be a certain scale and a certain size, they have to focus on strategies of domination and control in order to continue to grow and in order to continue to extract uh, profit from them. But a pluriversal world, a uh, pluriversal approach might define different outcomes. And maybe profitability isn't the outcome we should be focused on. Maybe growth isn't the, oppor the opportunity. Um, maybe, as I say, it's equal representation or equal access or diversity of viewpoints. Maybe that's a better set of priorities. I realize what I'm saying right now is maddeningly vague. I get it. It's frustrating for me as well. I'd like to be more specific. But because we're at the beginning of this process and because the tools don't fully exist, I don't know exactly how to define that outcome. Like, I don't know what it looks like. We might not know it until we see it. But what I'm hopeful for is that you'll see, instead of a single metaverse or a handful of dominated metaverses, I'd love to see a flowering of thousands or maybe millions of metaverses where people can find different ways to interact, different ways to be communal, different ways to participate with each other. I have a very high degree of certitude that that is, in fact, what is going to happen, at least to a certain degree. You know, we have this situation in the U.S., and I think it's replicated around the world of the increased polarization and tribalism uh, and the colonization of people's minds with different dogmas and, and, and points of view. And in some way, going back to my story about my starry-eyed description of Web2 and the democratization of media, the unexpected consequence of that was a complete fracturing of a central narrative. Because when we were growing up, you know, you had ABC News and or BBC News, if you're in the and, you, and that was the news, and everybody, uh, there was a newspaper that everybody read, and everybody had a shared narrative, and that created the fabric of society. And, you know, when, when Churchill came to, and talked about that, he, yes, he was preserving this, the narrative of, of the empire, and, and that was what he was trying to colonize to, to sustain it. And unfortunately, we're seeing the price of not having a narrative or a truth that we can bond ourselves to, right, as a society. And it's actually causing a complete, a complete deterioration of the fabric of society. And it's easy for us to point the finger at the other side and say, it's just that other side that just doesn't believe in truth. But I think there's a broader, more systematic challenge. So I think this fracturing into these infinite number of societies, on the one hand, feels like there's a libertarian beneficial humanistic aspect of self-expression and, and feeling safe and feeling amongst people that have the same shared beliefs. But there's also the other side of the risk of not seeing and not really empathizing with with other points of view. It's it's so complicated and Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Look, here here's the thing. That uni 
universal uh, concept that, that uh, mass media was able to kind of reinforce. Um, let's be clear, yeah, that worked to stabilize democracies in the 20th century. It certainly did, right? This idea that you have a national narrative. What is a nation? What is a nation? A nation is an imagined community of people who think they have something in common. But what do you really have in common? If you're living in, say, the United States, you know, I live in California, what do I have in common with someone in Texas or Minnesota or Maine? The answer is I don't even know who that person is. Like I, I can't even guess. So we, we create this mythology that we do. So bear in mind that a great deal of mass media, the function of mass media was to indoctrinate people into a belief uh, that they shared certain things together. And you're right. Uh, the advent of digital media and the democratization of media um, and frankly the multiplicity of the media outlets today has shattered that unified myth. It's shattered it. And I don't think it's going to get put back together. We pine for it, right? We all pine for the day when there were just a few broadcast networks that all kind of told us the story about ourselves. Um, but we also have to recognize that that story didn't reflect everybody's experience equally. It didn't include everybody equally. It excluded a lot of people. There was a process that you referred to. It's an important one. I want to underscore erasure, the erasure of certain people's experience. Um, generally, it's minority people, it's people who think differently, or people who have a different background, native people, and so forth. But bear in mind, those people didn't go away. In many cases, those cultures still exist. They're just excluded from that national myth. The pluriversal approach says, okay, let's accept the fact that many people are going to live in many different ways. There isn't one uniform approach. There is no universal. There is no magical solution that's going to get everybody to unify again. That's over. Let's accept the multiplicity. Let's accept the multiple identities. So let's accept that there are many different people who live in different ways, different groups. This is not easy. Like you said, this is a tough thing for people to get their head wrapped around because what we crave is the simplicity of the single narrative, that national narrative that binds us. But you have to understand that to get to that national narrative, you have to eliminate a lot of other things. You got to erase a lot of other things and be kind of, you have to practice a kind of cultural ignorance in order to sustain that narrative. Uh, what we're asking people to do when we ask them to think in a decolonial way is to do something much more difficult, which is to embrace the possibility that there are many different ways to experience life. There are many different kinds of cultures and embrace them all and hold them all as equal. Now what's happened in recent years, let's say in the last 10 or maybe 20 years, is that the fragmentation of people's understanding has been weaponized. Uh, and there are a lot, of, a lot of different theories about why that happened and who's doing it, but I think it's safe to say that a big part of it is politics. It's very easy to drive wedges between groups of people. It's very easy to pit people against each other. In many ways, identity politics has been weaponized. It's been turned into a way to get people to rally around one point of view and create a quick enemy. That's the easiest way to control a population is to point to an enemy. And we see examples of that. Every country, you can point to an example of that happening. I don't think that that's necessarily the only outcome of a multiplicity of viewpoints. I think that's one we need to be very cautious about. And as a society, we're not very good at dealing with it yet. We're not even aware when we're being programmed that way, when we're being manipulated that way. Uh, you know, this is what the kerfuffle about Facebook was the last 10 years, uh, that you know, much of Facebook's algorithm was being gamed uh, by political actors to manipulate people, to shape their perceptions and shape their sense of identity at the expense of other groups. My hope is that we can evolve past that. And part of the reason I'm raising this issue about the colonization of the metaverse is that I don't want to see that idea implanted in the metaverse before the thing is even built. You know, I'm worried that we're going to implant these notions mindlessly, like I say, without even consciously recognizing we're doing it. We're going to weave that into the architecture of these systems. And just to, so people understand what I'm talking about, you mentioned earlier uh, algorithmic bias, and I think it's a really important point. This is beyond dispute. We already know that algorithmic systems, we don't have to talk about artificial intelligence, just algorithmic systems have bias. And the bias is there because these programs are written by human beings. It's provable. And the bias is uh, gender-based, it's, it's racial-based, it can be economic bias as well. And, and then some people say to me, well, what's the consequence of that? So what? There's bias in algorithm. Well, the consequence of that is you don't know when you're being presented with an option on the internet, uh, when you're presented, presented an offer or an ad or an opportunity of some sort, you don't know what's being filtered out. You can't possibly know what choices you're not being presented with. The system makes that decision for you. And uh, there are many examples today, if, you know, at least in the US where I'm based, uh, we tend to use credit scores and zip codes in algorithms when we're evaluating people, populations. Why? 
Well, because you're not allowed to use race or gender as a criterion, right, to make a decision. That's against the law. That's discriminatory. But it turns out if I have your credit score and your zip code, I can be 99% accurate in guessing what race and gender you are, and thereby I can make decisions that have implicit bias. And that bias is provable over large populations. It's provable that that bias exists. So unfortunately, we're getting negative outcomes. Uh, you know, what I'm focused on is different processes, but the, but the ultimate outcome of those processes is the same bad outcome that we have in the real world where people operate with bias. Uh, so I think that this is uh, two points there. It's not theoretical. That's point number one. This is happening today. And then point number two is I dread the possibility that we're going to just mindlessly expand upon this in these uh, metaverses. Um, and bear in mind, in a metaverse, you're going to be fully immersed in somebody else's version of reality. It isn't the real world. It's somebody else's invention that you're going to be in. It's someone else's version of the world. It's a model. All of the metaverses, every metaverse that's been proposed is a model. And one thing we know about models is they're not accurate. You can't have an accurate model because an accurate model is to fully replicate the world as it is. The world as it is is incredibly complicated. There's no way for us to do that. And so you're going to simplify. When you build a model, you have to take things out. You have to leave things out. And this is a giant question. What's being left out? Who's making that decision? There's all sorts of scope for bias in the decision about what's not included in the model. You won't know this as a user of these worlds. You won't be aware of the decisions that were made about what you don't get seen, the choices you don't get presented with, what was left out of the model. So I know you, you can probably hear a sense of urgency in what I'm saying, because I think this message needs to be hammered again and again and again into people's heads until we start to get aware of it. We're constructing a world of inherent bias. The programming might not even be deliberate. It might not even be done consciously by the people who are building it. They're just going to mindlessly replicate the bias that they already have in their heads. What they think is important, what they think isn't important will be left out. But what they think isn't important might be... Just like Hollywood, right? Hey, look, I'm not going to defend Hollywood. Uh, we're in the business of telling narratives and... No, I'm saying it's the same. It's the same uh, situation. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question, uh, and I'm not asking it just as a flippant question. I'm just as a kind of a futurist, and I'm going to try to break your brain. Are you ready? <laughs> Do you think that certain states in the United States will eventually criminalize abortions in the metaverse? That's an interesting notion, uh, because what you're really saying is, can states that want to control human behavior, also ban the expression or talk about that behavior. Or even uh, in the future, you might give birth to AI entities, you know? Hmm. Okay, that's a whole different spin on the concept. Uh, you know, one of the things I'd say is right now, we're already starting to see states contemplate legislation that would prohibit people from promoting alternatives to their laws, right? These restrictive abortion laws. You're starting to see states say, we'll take action against companies that fly employees to another state for an abortion or something like that. So they're seeking ways to control um, what companies do. And, and then broadly, they're going to also start to control the way people talk about abortion. So you can see that extending over to the metaverse. And so you can start to imagine in digital environments that level of control. Uh, by the way, I don't think any of these laws are going to happen. I think these are all just positioning. Uh, this is the stuff that gets the base riled up. And the, for those who are listening who are outside the United States, uh, 65% of the United States population favors abortion and favors a woman's right to choose. So you know, this is not something that's widespread conviction in the United States. It's a highly contentious issue, though, because we're talking about life, right, and the conception of life. And so these are metaphysical discussions that, frankly, are very difficult to settle in a legal environment. They may never be settled in the United States. I see this as an ongoing dispute that's going to continue for a very long time. There are many political actors who enjoy this dispute because they get power from it, right? They want to split the electorate along issues where people can't possibly resolve the issue. That's a way to control population. So I think anyone who's listening to this, just be aware that when you're confronted with an issue like this uh, that is irreconcilable, where there are just fundamentally philosophical differences at the core that you can't resolve in the law, well, then I think what you're probably being is manipulated by somebody who's trying to control you. Do I think that's going to happen in the metaverse? Yeah, I think the metaverse is the right environment for, for manipulation and control, and particularly if we do it in an unconscious way. So sure, the, the short answer to your question is yes. And it's the same colonization. So here's an interesting idea. There are indigenous groups around the world now that are starting to experiment with virtual worlds as a way to preserve their culture and network with other indigenous societies. Uh, I spoke to John Anderson, who's a researcher at the University of Idaho, who has now linked up indigenous groups in North America and in, um, in Asia and in Central Asia 
so that they can, first of all, where they can uh, kind of like preserve their own cultural practices and, and maybe get a head start, you know, build their own metaverse before they get dominated. But more importantly, uh, group, network those groups together. There are about 350 million indigenous people around the world, but they're all dis disparate, right? They're not concentrated in large numbers. Uh, they're all um, so isolated from each other as well. And so this is a positive aspect of digital media is the ability to link together disparate groups, people who are geographically dispersed, give them a way to communicate with each other, compare best practices, support each other and so forth. I'm excited about that idea. I wanna share some, I wanna, I don't wanna make this entirely negative. I want people to see that there's opportunity today to take some action uh, that's positive. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful use case where one can create a replica of something that is disappearing and preserve it in a way that is experiential. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you know, Second Life. Second Life's been around for 20 years, and you see what people do in Second Life. It's very different from what's being proposed for the most of these corporate metaverses. You know, Second Life is is a free for all, and if you want to just you know present yourself as a giant pink fuzzy bunny rabbit, you can do that, and no one's going to stop you. The corporate Disneyland's that I've seen so far, they don't give you anything close to that level of self-expression uh, or that level of creativity. And I think they're missing, a, I think they're going to miss an opportunity there. Of course, there'll be other, other metaverses that do allow that level of creativity or they'll do it within some, some range of possibility. Uh, where I'd love to see us get to is a point where people can create their own representations, maintain them, and maintain them across different metaverses. Uh, so there's a real struggle coming between what does the user control and own versus what does the metaverse corporate parent own and control. And that goes to your identity. And at the core of the issues around the metaverse is the control of identity. Uh, digital identity is not something that's been well-defined in the internet protocols. It's sort of like the missing protocol. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of debate right now about self-sovereign identity and many proposals for that. It is interesting that cryptocurrency or the, let's say the, the blockchain technologies that power cryptocurrency can also be used for decentralized identity systems. And that's something I think that's very important. I'd love to see that elevated to the forefront of the discussion. The problem with identity as a topic is it's complicated and boring for most people. I would say like this, most people are happy to trade their identity for free email, right? Or most people are happy to trade their identity for free social networking. They don't wanna pay for stuff, so they'll give away something they think is no value. But that identity information has tremendous value. I, I talked to a researcher at Microsoft a couple of years ago on this topic, and he said, look, you don't have one digital identity. You have thousands, but you don't control any of them, and you're not aware of most of them, and that's a problem. That's a profoundly important insight, right? You have thousands of digital identities today. It's just you're not aware of any of them, and there are private companies who you can't even name, you're not even aware of, that control those identities. They consist of profiles, you know, basically profiles. It's not so much that you need to know who you are, you know, Ido Segal at a certain address. Some companies want that information, some for good purposes, some for nefarious purposes. On a larger, you know, population scale level, they want to be able to influence populations, um, right? Because there's not really a big difference between advertising and propaganda and political control. These three things are, they use the exact same techniques. And digital media is, is, is like a super weapon for this. Mass media is gonna look really tame relative, I, I think when we look back in history at the effects of digital media, because of the personalization, because artificial intelligence can create a unique experience for you. Just, just look at TikTok, you know, like every person's experience at TikTok is completely different. And that's because of algorithmic feeds that are tailored to your interest level. And they're starting to build an incredibly rich profile from the instant you log into TikTok, they don't need to know you personally to control you personally. Um, and they're not the only actor that's in that space, but they're a very good example. Yeah, is that because you're not that as unique as you think you are? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately true. Any, <laughs> any insurance company could tell you that, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, as we run out of time, I'm trying to bridge to a positive outlook so we leave our listeners with some uh, optimism because I think we've, we had a, a really open conversation about some of the challenges we both feel and kind of, yeah. Well, it's a challenging time, right? And your listeners are grown-ups who can deal with this. We had a hell of a run for the last 12 years. We've been, the, we've been this, this phenomenal bull market in the technology world that left us with five companies with trillion-dollar or multi-trillion-dollar uh, stock market capitalizations. That's an extraordinary experience. And now we've hit a speed bump. Right. And so, you know, everyone's freaking out right now about the last six months because the market 
dipped, crashed, cratered in the case of cryptocurrency. But if you look at, if you zoom out to like the 12 year track record, you see this dip, all it did was erase the kind of inflated gains, the sugar rush that we got during COVID-19. Um, it just is a setback of two years. Um, that's all that's happened. We wind the clock back two years. The valuations have gone back two years, not more than that. My expectation is that this process towards digitization, uh, people spending more time in digital environments and spending more, t more parts of our lives are gonna get digitally mediated. I think that's gonna continue. And so if you're interested in those or you're active in those fields, I still see great room for growth ahead. I think it's a positive scenario. I also see tremendous potential for decentralized technologies in Web3. We need to get past the churn and the bullshit and the manipulation and all the, um, you know, all the scams and scandals and so forth to get to a level of credibility. But that would serve the industry, not just the users, that would serve the industry, it would confer credibility on the industry and make it easier for big corporations and governments to get behind it. I think the promise of de decentralized technologies is incredibly alluring. It's a great promise. It's just that the reality has failed to fulfill it entirely at this stage. Like you say, there's interesting developments happening all over the world right now. I expect that we're gonna to start to see some traction there. And just based on the sheer amount of developer activity, like I, got, I haven't seen this much of developer activity and excitement and ingenuity since 2004, 2006 around mobile. But it took four years or five years before we saw the fruits of that labor. And I think that might be the case here as well. Maybe it'll be shorter time frame. So I remain tremendously optimistic. I think technologies that unite people, free people to communicate with each other, allow them to organize themselves in different ways, that's exciting. And anything with, we didn't talk about open metaverse uh, or interoperable metaverse, but those are important terms that people could search and find. There's so much to be said about those two topics, open interoperable metaverse. There's room for great potential there, great opportunity there. So yeah, it's not all dark, it's not all bleak. I tend to focus on problems because that's candidly what I do for a living is solve problems. So it's really important to have these conversations and uh, I really appreciate you, yeah. Yeah, yeah bear in mind, I'll, a lot of the stupidity of the time that we live in right now is because people start with solutions, right? Uh, what we're trying to do right now is do some careful thinking about what's the nature of the problem we're really trying to solve, right? And that's why it's a little bit hard to put your finger on the actual solution. I'm okay with that. Like, I don't think that's a shortcoming or a failure of this conversation. I think it's worthwhile to spend a fair amount of time trying to define the problem, really understand what is it we're trying to solve before we rush to a solution or an easy, you know, cause there's so many people out there that I find e even in this metaverse space, you'll find them on fortune magazine, you know, on websites like that, where three things you need to know about the metaverse or the top five steps towards launching your own metaverse. This kind of formulaic approach is too simplistic and too easy for the kinds of complex challenges that we're talking about. And in a way it just wallpapers over those challenges. And so it really isn't even addressing the deep issues. So I think it's okay to spend a fair amount of time thinking in an athletic fashion. Uh, about the na nature of the challenge. Uh, so anyway, I, I thought this was a useful conversation. I hope people got some benefit. Yeah, me too. So true. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Uh, Rob Tersek, uh, there'll be sh stuff in the show notes if you're interested to learn more of the amazing output that Rob has in his book. And please check it out. And Rob, thanks so much. We'll do this again soon. Thank you. Start your .metaverse journey today. You can claim your .metaverse Web3 domain for free right now at touchcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, subscribe today to stay up to date with our latest episodes.